Dominus Vobiscum, Cradle Catholics, Converts, and Future Converts. You guys, it is officially the Feast of Corpus Christi. Welcome to episode one. To celebrate the feast, we're talking about the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully present in the Holy Eucharist. So a lot of you guys have been seeing irreverence out there. I have too. The most popular response on the Q&A said that the biggest reason why people don't believe in the Eucharist is due to irreverence and not talking about the Eucharist enough. So here I am, talking about the Eucharist. Now, I know a lot of people out there on the interwebs talk about the abuse of communion on the hand pretty frequently. So I'm not going to talk about that yet. Today, we're going to talk about another liturgical experimentation, commonly known as extraordinary ministers. But before we get started, go ahead and smash that subscribe button to see more videos like these. I'm your host, Paul B., and this is the Communion of Saints. The Catholic Church permitted extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion when they were genuinely necessary. The ordinary ministers are the bishop, the priest, or the deacon, hence their name, extraordinary ministers, were never intended to be used ordinarily. However, the frequency of their use appears to cause real sacrilege to the Eucharist. This corrodes reverence for not only the Eucharist, but also the sacrament of holy orders. Some claim that extraordinary ministers were used by the early church. Others say that the Second Vatican Council granted their permission. Within the United States, extraordinary ministers are commonplace, even when they're unnecessary. Let's start off with our terms. Extraordinary minister of Holy Communion is misused interchangeably with Eucharistic minister. The latter phrase is an official term from those who distribute communion. However, it is used by the Anglican Church. This religion was founded as recently as 1867, and her supreme governor is the current monarch of England. One error that reveals unconscious attitudes is this big fancy word called a parapraxis, and is commonly known as a Freudian slip. So perhaps this misapplication of terms, Eucharistic instead of extraordinary, is a Freudian slip in which a nominal Catholic reveals that he has a heretical disbelief in the real presence. This similarity in terms and practice exposes the effects of the post-conciliar reform. Today, practices of the Catholic Church are strikingly similar to that of the Anglican Church. This Church of England does not possess the real presence, as do the Orthodox, for instance. But by the alteration of their words of ordination, Anglican priests do not consecrate bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Anglican sacraments are invalid, therefore, and they hold defective form and intention. As a result, when a Catholic labels an extraordinary minister as a Eucharistic minister, he degrades the truth of the Church to that of Protestants. Likewise, the theologically conservative, by Protestant standards, Lutheran Church of the Missouri Synod believe that the bread and wine are consecrated into the body and blood of Christ and are referred to as the elements. So Lutherans discard the term transubstantiation, but rather they believe, quote, the body and blood are present in, with, and under the bread and wine. So while they believe in the real presence, Lutheran sacraments are invalid from a Catholic standpoint. Now, despite this invalidity, the LCMS appears to practice a significant level of reverence for communion. In 1983, a decade after the Catholic Church permitted extraordinary ministers, the LCMS Commission on Theology and Church Relations 
published a document titled Theology and Practice of the Lord's Supper. In response to a question of elders administering the elements to the ill, the commission responds, quote, The chief consideration regarding such a practice is that the role of the pastor in the sacrament and the sacramental life of the church should not be displaced. Whenever possible, the pastor will distribute the elements to the communicants. So this quote suggests that the distribution of the elements by the lay faithful displaces the role of the pastor. Therefore, in the Catholic Church, distribution of the Eucharist by the lay faithful would likewise displace the role of the priest. In several Catholic churches where the Novus Ordo Mass is offered, multiple extraordinary ministers distribute the Eucharist alongside of ordinary ministers. Nevertheless, if Lutheran theology was applied to the Catholic situation, the Protestants would take offense to this practice. Therefore, it is no surprise that a decrease of priests has resulted since the permission of extraordinary ministers. Later, in the same Protestant document, the commission addresses the equivalent of female extraordinary ministers. In response to an inquiry if laywomen could distribute the elements, the LCMS says, quote, The commission strongly recommends that to avoid confusion regarding the office of the public ministry and to avoid giving offense to the church, sh such assistance should remain to men. At most parishes, there are more female extraordinary ministers than male. This institution does not possess valid sacraments, but still considers female assistance of the elements as potential for theological confusion then surely the church with valid sacraments causes bafflement. It is true that the church permits the use of extraordinary ministers. Paul VI approved the instruction of Immense Caritatis on January 29, 1973, which allows for the lay distribution of the Holy Eucharist. At the same time, the church has specific rules which permits the use of extraordinary ministers, hence the term extraordinary as opposed to ordinary. On the Feast of the Assumption of the Blessed Mother, 1997 AD, John Paul II directed the interdicastorial instruction, Ecclesia de Mysterio, on certain questions regarding the collaboration of the non-ordained faithful in the sacred ministry of the priest. Long title there. So this was signed and authored by the eight highest dicasteries of the Holy See, including the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. In less than one decade later, Ratzinger became the head of the Catholic Church as Pope Benedict XVI. In addition, this instruction carries a significant level of authority since this instruction was promulgated in forma specifica. This means Ecclesia de Mysterio has the canonical force of a papal act. The authority does not end there. His Holiness went so far as to revoke any and all particular laws, customs, and faculties conceded by the Holy See ad experimentum. This cancellation of liturgical experiments reflects Vatican II, which sought to avoid all innovations. The Holy See indicates that modern practices have arisen in the liturgy. She says that in order, quote, to avoid creating confusion, certain practices are to be avoided and eliminated where such have emerged in particular churches, to quote Ecclesia de Mysterio. So the Catholic Church, like the Lutherans, believe that extraordinary ministers confuse the faithful. She continues to explain the practices to avoid. Quote, the habitual use of extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion at Mass, thus arbitrarily extending the concept of a great number of the faithful. John Paul II notes that the habitual use of extraordinary ministers openly violates the requirements 
necessary for their use as outlined by Paul VI in Immensa Caritatis. Despite the desperate efforts of the Holy See and Ecclesia de Mysterio, ordinary use of extraordinary ministers reoccurred. Just a year before his death, John Paul II restated the conditions. Quote, the extraordinary minister of Holy Communion may administer communion only when the priest and deacon are lacking, when the priest is prevented by weakness or advanced age or some other genuine reason, or when the number of faithful coming to communion is so great that the very celebration of Mass would be unduly prolonged. Consequently, if extraordinary ministers distribute the Eucharist when there is a somewhat healthy priest present and not a gargantuan number of Catholics who are in a state of grace, then they directly violate the instruction of the Vicar of Christ. Nevertheless, U.S. bishops continued to disregard the papal efforts to eradicate conventional use of extraordinary ministers. This explicit disobedience mocks the salvation of souls of the lay faithful, the authority of the Pope, and the very sacrament every priest receives, the sacrament of holy orders. So the Catholic bishops instruct that the appropriate amount of ministers, not extraordinary ministers, present at Holy Mass must be well-planned. Quote, when Holy Communion is to be distributed under both species, careful planning should be undertaken that a suitable number of ministers of Holy Communion are provided at each Mass. So what this means is that if they're extraordinary ministers, when both species are present, then there wasn't careful planning that took place, at least according to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. The spirit of Vatican II and its documents encourage active participation of the laity within Holy Mass. Within all 16 documents of Vatican II, there's not a singular mention of extraordinary ministers, nor the reception of Holy Communion on the hand. Even though Vatican II does not speak of these practices, some still claim that the Council implies these changes, rather than the Holy Spirit. Some theologians claim that we, the post-conciliar church, must follow the spirit of Vatican II. In regards to the myths of Vatican II, Cardinal Duels, a Jesuit, writes in America magazine, Some propounded that where there are ambiguities in the council documents, these should always be resolved in favor of discontinuity. He continues to elaborate on this phrase. Others use the device of preferring to follow the spirit of Vatican II at the expense of the letter. So his eminence makes careful note that the spirit of Vatican II sides with rupture of the hermeneutic of continuity. Further, Duels elaborates that the spirit of the council is at odds with the letter and the documents of the council. Vatican II herself advised against liturgical experimentation. It was Sacrosanctum Concilium that explains, quote, Finally, there must be no innovations unless the good of the church genuinely and certainly requires them, and care must be taken that any new forms adopted should in some way grow organically from forms already existing. Extraordinary ministers are unnecessary unless extraordinary conditions are present. Both the practices of extraordinary ministers and communion in the hand never existed as understood today in church history. They're both innovations, and Vatican II condemns them in Sacrosanctum Concilium. The Polish Pope understands that there is a disconnection between the traditional Latin Mass the documents of Vatican II, and then, and then the post-conciliar reform. 
Since this reform has several possibilities due to the ambiguous language of the council documents, John Paul II warns that tradition must be retained. He writes, It must not be forgotten that complete renewal makes yet other demands in Dominica Cene. The demands that he describes are modern tendencies which are contrary to tradition. Without historical roots in scripture nor tradition, the church begins to die. John Paul II informs, To preserve these actions from all artificiality, they should express such capacity, simplicity, and dignity as to highlight the special character of the sacred text, even by the very manner of reading or singing. An increase of the laity's involvement within the liturgy dangerously teeters on artificiality. He says, To touch the sacred species and to distribute them with their own hands is a privilege of the ordained, one which indicates an active participation of the ministry of the Eucharist. In this line, the Holy Father identifies that the clergy have a role to play in active participation as well as the lady. The ordinary minister, as a matter of fact, is him who is ordained. Hence, extraordinary ministers should never distribute Holy Communion regularly. He addressed that in the past, the unordained were sometimes permitted to distribute the Eucharist. He explicates, it is obvious that the church can grant this faculty to those who are neither priests nor deacons, as is the case with acolytes, in the exercise of their ministry, especially if they are destined for future ordination or with other lay people who are chosen for this to meet a just need, but always after an adequate preparation. Although they may not be ordained, the Pope makes the case that acolytes, which are altar boys, and seminarians are permitted to distribute the Eucharist. Since they are destined for future ordination, it is impossible for there to be a female acolyte. Paul VI addressed who is permitted to be appointed as an acolyte. He writes, The institution of the lector and acolyte, according to the venerable tradition of the church, is reserved to men. End quote. That comes from Ministeria Quidum. Other members of the lady are sometimes acceptable to be extraordinary ministers. The Catholic Church has always professed that, quote, a baptized male alone receives sacred ordination validly, according to the Code of Canon Law. Paul VI says that acolytes and seminarians are male. John Paul II writes that extraordinary ministers should at least be acolytes. Therefore, extraordinary ministers should not be female. In the same document on acolytes, Paul VI eliminated the holy minor orders and replaced them instead just with the acolyte and the lector. They claim all men are baptized priest, prophet, and king, and therefore have the same duty as the ordained priest. This means that the position of acolyte and lector are no longer relevant. As recently as January 2021, Pope Francis has forced changes so that women are permitted to be deputed as altar servers and acolytes. One could argue that men and women are permitted to be extraordinary ministers then. However, this is only according to modern 2021 instruction. Prior to this date, any female extraordinary minister violated the tradition of the church since the church has never permitted female altar servers until Pope Francis. This action is not in line with the hermeneutic of continuity and an inorganic change. Although female acolytes are allowed under modern law, the permission was never formally extended to extraordinary ministers. Now, some argue that extraordinary ministers facilitate the duties of ordinary ministers. For instance, they distribute Holy Communion, they administer the sacrament to the ill, they bless those who do not wish to receive our Lord, but still present themselves anyways, 
rather than staying in their pew, and then they expose the Blessed Sacrament in adoration. Therefore, one could argue that they increase respect of the ordained priests. Extraordinary ministers decrease the length of time Mass takes, which they claim increases the number of lay faithful in attendance. This makes it easier for the laity, then, they argue, to receive the Eucharist. The amount of priests and religious has drastically decreased since the authorization of extraordinary ministers. Catholics cannot ignore the gaping privation of priests within the United States. The number of diocesan priests in the United States has fallen from 37,272 priests in 1970 AD to 24,653 priests in 2020 AD. Just to give that some context, the Novus Ordo Mass was published in 1970 AD, and three years later, extraordinary ministers were permitted. Ironically, many of the same Novus Ordo parishes who beg for more vocations are the same parishes who commit sacrilege via the misuse of extraordinary ministers. The number of priests correlates to the innovation of extraordinary ministers because they have made the duty of a priest no longer necessary. Like an employee replaced by a machine, extraordinary ministers have robbed the holy responsibility of protection of the Eucharist from ordained ministers. The Catechism of the Catholic Church considers intentional irreverence against the Eucharist as sacrilege. She writes, quote, Sacrilege consists in profaning or treating unworthily the sacraments and other liturgical actions, as well as persons, things, or places consecrated to God. This is a severe sin, and if not confessed pre-mortem, will lead to damnation. The Catechism categorizes this sin. Sacrilege is a grave sin, especially when committed against the Eucharist, according to the Catechism. So, therefore, it is no surprise that the Church punishes those who commit sacrilege of the Eucharist with a latae sentiae excommunication and, if he is a priest, dismissal from the clerical state, to quote the Code of Canon Law. And so then this means that automatic excommunication and stripping of one's priesthood are the consequences for this offense. With a formal difference, sacrilege occurs at various different degrees. The highest are the sacraments whereby man is sanctified, chief of which is the sacrament of the Eucharist, to quote the Summa Theologica. Sacrilege is a grievous sin that profanes the source and summit of the entire Catholic faith. Thus, the treatment and reverence of our Eucharistic Lord must be the utmost importance especially within the Holy Liturgy. Father Peter Shervinskis is the founder of The Catholic Answer and author of over 30 books and hundreds of articles. He recounts widespread misuse of extraordinary ministers. Over a three-year period, I preached in more than 100 parishes at weekend masses. Only seven did not use extraordinary ministers, and none, to my knowledge, fulfilled the requirements of the Vatican instruction, immensely caritatis. Some places had literally dozens of people so deputed. I know of one parish which has 225 extraordinary ministers. So this disgraceful disclosure brings to light the extensive sacrilege of the ordinary use of extraordinary ministers. This priest is educated on immensely caritatis and was thus able to identify that none of the requirements for the legitimate use of extraordinary ministers were present. So it would seem that in the case of St. Tarsisius, there is an ancient use of extraordinary ministers. He was a young acolyte who was tasked to bring the Blessed Sacrament to other Christians. This was during a time of extreme persecution, hence the title of the book by Cardinal Wiseman, Fabiola, the Church of the Catacombs. The primary cause for his canonization was for his heroic martyrdom. Cardinal Wiseman 
captures the news of St. Tarsicius's death. Quote, Madam, replied Quadratus, they have murdered him because he was a Christian. End quote. Furthermore, Blessed Pope Pius IX canonized Tarsicius on June 29, 1867. This is the same feast day, of course, of the most famous of all martyrs, Saints Peter and Paul. Moreover, the Blessed Sacrament was given the utmost care and respect, as even though he was murdered, Tarsicius protected the Eucharist. Rather than to allow our Eucharistic Lord to be profane, Tarsicius gave his life, even though he was a young boy, dying with the Eucharist in his hands. The church was literally underground within the catacombs at the time of Tarsicius's martyrdom in 275 AD. In fact, Wiseman describes the pressure of the Roman. The hostile passions of heathen Rome were unusually excited by the coming slaughter of so many Christian victims. It was a work of more than common danger to discharge this duty. Viaticum, which means provision for a journey or food for the way in Latin, refers to the Eucharist, which is given to those in immediate danger of death. The duty of distributing the Viaticum was in such high demand because hundreds of Christians were martyred. The author elaborates to describe the persecution. He says, Quote, Fulvius, a Roman official, had carefully noted all the ministers of the sanctuary and given a description of them to his numerous active spies. Hence, they could scarcely venture out by day unless thoroughly disguised. The Roman officials cracked down on extraordinary ministers so tightly that hitless were literally made. In Christus Vincit, Archbishop Athanasius Schneider explains the origins of the modern practice. Quote, never before in church history had lay people distributed Holy Communion during Mass. This was only permitted in exceptional cases and was always outside of Mass. The point which the bishop makes can be easily missed, but it makes all the difference. He distinguishes that although acolytes were permitted to distribute the viaticum, there is absolutely no historical basis in all of church history for extraordinary ministers during Holy Mass. The 1973 document, Amense Caritatis, outlines the norms for extraordinary ministers. This document was, and still is, so unprecedented that it made its way into secular news. The New York Times published an article on March 30, 1973, titled Vatican Broadens Role of Laity in Communion Rite. Adjacent to a Macy's advertisement for their spring sale, the author writes the following, the reform recognizes the usage in which members of the laity take, which he means receive, the communion wafer, which he means the Eucharist, in their hands before eating it, instead of having the priest put it in their mouths, end quote. So the article expounds that in the single document, Paul VI not only allowed for extraordinary ministers, but also communion in the hand. So these two permissions are easily the most controversial changes that the church has ever made due to their lack of tradition and their condemnation by nearly every other pope in all of church history. Pope Paul VI was prompted to allow for the use of extraordinary ministers in order for the Eucharist to be more readily available. Quote, the new conditions of the present seem to demand that without prejudice to the supreme reverence due to so great a sacrament, access to communion be made easier. So while politics claims good intentions, this led the church down the wrong road. 
For instance, the majority of U.S. Catholics no longer believe that Christ is present within the Eucharist. In 2019, just one-third of U.S. Catholics, which is 31%, say they believe that during Mass, the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus. The Church defines the Blessed Sacrament as the central aspect of Christianity. She writes in the Catechism, The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. Within the Mass, both bread and wine are consecrated into the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, the bread becomes both the body and the blood, and the wine becomes both the body and the blood. The accidents may appear different, however, the substance is, is still Christ, whole and entire. There is no division between the single substance. Within the traditional Latin Mass, the Eucharist is received by the priest from both the patent accidents of the bread and the chalice accidents of the wine. However, the laity only received from the accidents of the patent. The post-conciliar reform prompted for both species to be distributed by the faithful. The USCCB expresses the need for extraordinary ministers, quote, for communion from the chalice, it is desirable that there be generally two ministers of the precious blood for each minister of the body of Christ, lest the liturgical celebration be unduly prolonged. Now, where have we heard this before? So in the quote, the U.S. Catholic bishops cite Sacrosanctum Concilium, and they reveal that the ambiguity instigated by Vatican II, the phrase unduly prolonged, has no objective circumstances to abide by. This limit could be, as Peter Kozneski says, any length of time, and if considered according to the spirit of Vatican II, five minutes may be too long. The final line is this, extraordinary ministers commit sacrilege when they are used ordinarily. The documents of Vatican II never mentioned extraordinary ministers. There is no historical use of extraordinary ministers, especially not within the Mass. The lack of vocations is correlated to the habitual use of extraordinary ministers as well. When extraordinary ministers are ever used ordinarily, they and their authorities commit sacrilege if they do so knowingly, and those who commit sacrilege must be subject to excommunication. If you're like me, you are simply a member of the lay faithful. So you might be asking yourself, what can I do about Eucharistic sacrilege? First, you can write to your local priest or bishop and ask what his thoughts on Amense Caritatis are. If your parish uses extraordinary ministers ordinarily, like at daily mass, and you want a reverent mass free of extraordinary ministers, then consider finding a local Latin mass. There's a wonderful website out there called Latin Mass Directory, which you can visit at www.latinmassdir.org. Also, Our Lady of Fatima warned us of liturgical abuse. Before she appeared to the children, the Angel of Peace made a plea for reparation of the Eucharist. During the third apparition of the angel, he taught them this prayer. Oremus, in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I adore thee profoundly. I offer thee the most precious body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, present in all the tabernacles of the world, in reparation for the outrages, sacrileges, and indifference with which he is offended. By the infinite merits of his most sacred heart and the immaculate heart of Mary, I beg of thee the conversion of poor sinners. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the communion of saints.
This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Share this episode with a friend, your neighbor, Susan from the Parish Council, or anyone. Let me know when you do for a shout out on at communion.of.saints Instagram, and go ahead and follow me to stay up to date on all the latest Catholic info. I'm Paul B. with Communion of Saints. God bless. Thank you.